in case anybody's read the paper, I'm not just going to read the paper or even go over it. I pulled out all of the scripture that my paper is based on, and we're going to read over that. And then if anybody hasn't read it and was intrigued, I have about 10 copies up here. It's also on Theopolis website. I can text the link to any of you. Um, but And part of, part of the reason for doing that is my paper is kind of a what if, and I'm not even 100% convinced of my thesis, so this is my way of you know, threshing it out and getting some of the chaff out. Uh, so feel free to rip it apart. I'd, I'd be happy to see it go with dignity. Um, but uh, like Pastor said, I'll just say a little bit about Theopolis. Um, I, I am not actively pursuing ministry, but they uh, definitely present the Fellows Program as uh, strengthening lay people in addition to prepare, being introductory training for people looking to enter the ministry. Um, and my two highest priorities in going there were one, uh, just to learn more about the Bible, which it certainly, I think, helped with, and then two, learn more about how Theopolis kind of fits into our denomination. And uh, a quick, quick summation is James Jordan is kind of upstream of both Doug Wilson and Dr. Lightheart. And um, uh, James Jordan was pursuing a PhD, but never ended up uh, finishing it because he felt like all the terms that he were uh, he was learning were not integral to the Bible. Uh, you know, justification. Yes, it may be a true thing, but that's not what the Bible talks about. It talks about blood and guts of animals that you're cutting up in the temple. And so he spent a lot of time focusing that. And almost all of his lectures, he sounds like a mechanic who's really good at telling yarns, which I love. Kind of his blue collar ethos to um, uh, talking about theology and and I. And then Dr. Lightheart, who is his successor, got a PhD and has kind of smuggled a lot of his ideas into academia uh, because Dr. Lightheart presents papers that uh, are, are written in that academic register. But if you go to the footnotes, about half of them are James Jordan or people that are affiliated with James Jordan. And so it's really opened a lot of doors to the ideas that uh, James Jordan has said. Um, personally, I prefer listening to James Jordan, reading James Jordan. Uh, nothing against Dr. Lightheart, but I am not a huge fan of academia uh, and the attitude that it cultivates in its, in its denizens. So um, uh, they're located down in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, yeah, any questions about Theopolis before I move on? S supported mostly by CREC churches, but not Yes, and uh, that, that was the last thing I, I forgot I, I was going to mention. Um, James, Dr. James, or Reverend James Jordan, uh, his health is not great. His wife passed, I believe, three years ago. and um, But he is looking at potentially moving um, to Oregon, where our denomination is trying to get its own in-house seminary. So he will probably, if he does make that move, if his health is good enough, will continue to have an outsized influence in the theology of the ministers uh, serving in our denomination. So he, he is actually teaching a course there next He already is. Okay, cool. Um, so the, the paper that I wrote, as I already said, it's kind of a what if, um, and we're not going to be reading it, um, but the, the title that I gave for today's talk is not the title of my paper, and it's David's Folly and Solomon's Wisdom. And uh, the, yeah, so we're going to, in the, in the paper, I kind of inverted the timeline. But for here, we're just going to read through the texts that uh, I used. So First uh, Samuel um, 20, uh, verses 14 to 15. And will, will the audience get picked up, Sam, if I have? Okay. 
So would anyone volunteer to read those? Kim, was that your? So it's 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 to 15. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off his steadfast love from my house forever. For the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So this, uh, so the, the context for this, which I, I have this little bullet in your notes. Um, Saul is hunting David, and this is Jonathan's shooting of arrows to warn David. Um, I, I think this is the feast of the new moon. Thank you. Um, and uh, Jonathan makes David to swear that he will treat him and his descendants well. So this is the, this lays the groundwork for everything else that comes. And the, the uh, next part of this story, we have to go to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. So if somebody, actually, that's just one verse. Let me find that. So if somebody already wants to look up 2 Samuel 9, if they want to read a big chunk, that's uh, one of the meteor parts. All right. So in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth, which um, I'm not seeing the note in here, but I believe means crippled or lame. And uh, so the context for this is uh, Saul and Jonathan are dead, and uh, various people are carrying out uh, ret retributive killings. They think it's on David's behalf, but it's without his sanction and all of the people who happily report Saul's death or the killing of heirs, uh, aspirants to the throne, are themselves put to death. So David um, is staying true even in Saul's death to not, not harming a head on the chosen or his offspring. So uh, just, I, I put here as a note, I don't know if it's super relevant, but um, it's very interesting. It, it feels like this could be an anachronism, and the Bible frequently does that where the they kind of tell you the end before they tell you the beginning. So we're told uh, he, he was crippled in his feet, but then we're told that he was made lame by being dropped. It's possible he was already lame. Maybe he was, um, let's see, he was five years old, so probably old enough to run alongside his, his nurse. But it, so was he dropped first or was he already lame? Was he just crippled and then he became lame? And those are two different, I, I didn't dig super deep on those uh, words there in the Hebrew, so I don't know. But point being, um, Mephibosheth is uh, one of the only offspring that survives, but he is made cripple uh, in, in fleeing. So 2 Samuel 9, does anybody have that? Want to read a big chunk? Joel. Now David said, <clears throat> is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called, so when they called unto David, the king said to him, "Are you Ziba?" He said, "At your service." Then the king said, "Is there not still someone at the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God?" And Ziba said to the king, "There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet." But the king said to him, "Where is he?" And Ziba said to the king, "Indeed, he is in the house of." 
Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then, Jesus, then uh, David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan and your father's sake. And you will restore and will, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul, and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that all that my lord the king has commanded, his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mashibatheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. And for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Awesome. Thank you, uh, Joel. And that's our biggest uh, chunk reading, so uh, we won't get bogged down like that again as we read the others. Um, uh, a couple things that I'll point out, and I'll just recap in case anybody was busy with children or anything. Um, uh, once David has acceded to the throne, he wants to make sure that he follows through on the promise that Jonathan made him swear, that he would be faithful to Jonathan if he lived. Though it seems like Jonathan had some premonition of his death, and that, that came true. He did die, so he said, if I die, any that remain in my house, uh, be true to them. Treat them like you would me. And the only one remaining is Mephibosheth. And uh, the way that David finds that out is by Ziba, who had been a servant in the house of Jonathan's father, King Saul. Uh, and um, Ziba is put over all of the, the inheritance because Mephibosheth is incapable as a cripple to oversee those things. So basically, Mephibosheth is going to receive all of the interest from the productive property of uh, King Saul's inheritance, but will in fact eat at David's table. And uh, so, yeah, the, in, in the notes here, David remembers his promise and gives Saul and Jonathan's inheritance to Mephibosheth. David degree, uh, and I even spelled it wrong there, Mephibosheth is a shibboleth, if you remember that story. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, David decrees that Mephibosheth uh, will eat with him in his house. And uh, cu a couple interesting things that I noticed there that I hadn't until hearing you read it. Um, how, anybody, how many kids does Ziba have? How many sons does Ziba have? Fifteen? It's a lot of mouths to feed. So uh, it, it seems like maybe it's already setting up some of the tension. And how many children does uh, Mephibosheth have? One. He has one, yeah. And so certainly in a society that's very concerned with uh, the ability to pass on things to your, your children, um, it, is, it is interesting. There are a lot of mouths to feed with Ziba. So maybe we're already getting a motive for what happens later. And then I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. I explored just a teensy bit in the uh, 
in the article, but 2 Samuel 5, 8, which I'll read. You don't have to go there. Um, earlier uh, in the same book here in 2 Samuel, David uh, is, um, and I, yeah, this is Jerusalem. So when he's trying to take Jerusalem, uh, they, they taunt him from the wall. Um, your father was a hamster and your mother smelt of elderberries. And he, he shouts out, um, <laughs> uh, they, what they actually say is, um, we, we could defend these walls with the lame and the blind of our city. And basically they're just saying, you're nothing. You're, you're no threat to us. And so David, most likely responding in kind, taunts them back and says, uh, David said on that day, this is Second Samuel 5, 8, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the, and in my Bible it puts it in quotes, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the lame and the blind shall not come into the house. And uh, so... Uh, interpreters are kind of split. Some people say it is just a taunt and it has no meaning. Um, but the, the temple did have certain instructions on people who had certain physical deformities were not allowed in. And it seems like this saying, the lame and the blind shall not come into the house, potentially could have actually been a rule in David's house. Uh, so by allowing Mephibosheth to eat at his table, he could be breaking his own rule, or maybe it was just a taunt and it has no relevance. But... Um, Anyway, that's an interesting rabbit trail that I explored just a bit more in the paper. But uh, moving on to 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 4, and I'll, I'll read those. When David had passed a little beyond this, uh, and sorry, I'll give the context to this first. Absalom has chased David out of, well, Absalom has declared himself king. David does not want to start a civil war, so rather than defending Jerusalem, he decides to leave Jerusalem and figure out what he's going to do to avoid bloodshed. Um, so uh, David is leaving with his royal retinue, um, and he has left 10, I believe, 10 concubines behind to guard the castle or his home. Uh, what? Seems like a bad idea. Yeah, and it, it turns out that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, when David passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, we know his name, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him, with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And if I were a full Theopolitan, I'd spend the next 20 minutes talking about the significance of those numbers, but I, <laughs> I'm not, so we're going to move beyond that. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? which would be, of course, Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So um, the, the only little bullet point that I have here is uh, and, and I'll ask this in verse 3 the claim that he makes um, so he claims to be quoting Mephibosheth and he says behold all that belonged oh no sorry uh, behold mm, sorry today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father does anybody have any comments on that on why that may or may not be a believable thing that Mephibosheth would be saying. He's a dead dog. 
Yeah, that's what he calls himself later. So we, but we haven't. I don't think at this point we've heard him speak much. So it's out of character with what we have heard him say so far. And then in addition, Absalom is not going to share the throne with a descendant of David. It's, just, it's kind of a ridiculous claim. And my read on this is David has a lot going on. This is not the only person that accosts him on the way out. And then it's the same in reverse when he comes back to the throne. So he, he has lots of people plaguing him on the way out and then lots of people saying real nice things to him on the way back <laughs> in when he's coming in victorious. And it seems in, in both cases... He kind of has, uh, well, I guess the way my, my wife puts it is like mommy brain. Like after, after being asked like 20 things, you're just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, I, that's kind of how I read David. He doesn't even really take the time to, pro, or doesn't have the, the, the mental capacity at the moment to register what's being told him. So he grants all of Saul's inheritance to Ziba, which would be breaking the seemingly eternal promise that he made to, to Jonathan. And this would maybe be a little bit troublesome because it's very similar to the eternal promise that God has made to David and his offspring. So David is not being as, as faithful as uh, Mephibosheth. But if, uh, sorry, as, as God. But if Mephibosheth has thrown in his lot, then maybe it would be a just decision. So going to last verses in Second Samuel uh, 19, 24 to 30. And I'll read those as well. Um, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. This would be Ziba. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's uh, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord, the king, has come home safely. And um, so, there, yeah, so this, again, for context, in case anybody is missing it, David is now coming back in. So he already got one side of the story uh, from Ziba earlier in uh, chapter 16. And now here in chapter 19, he's getting the second side of the story, which is from Ziba. So down at the bottom of your, your notes uh, there, it has Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So this is Solomon. Um, uh, this is one of the things that made me think that maybe Solomon was thinking of this when he made his decision to cut the baby in half when two prostitutes came before him. Um, uh, because, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm tripping myself up a little bit because that's kind of the big reveal in the paper. So I've already spoiled that. That's, that's the cat, cat's out of the bag there. But um, uh, ta-da! Yeah, so. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but what, what got me thinking about this and ended up finding a potential precedent for David's kind of shocking decision to threaten, though I don't think he had any intent, 
of cutting a baby in half to reveal the hearts of two servants. Um, so as long as I've already let the cat out of the bag, before we read uh, 1 Kings, um, down at reading part two on your outline, these are the key points of Solomon's wisdom with the two prostitutes. And as you'll see, both of these apply equally well to both stories, the story with David and Ziba and Mephibosheth being the two servants, and then Solomon and 1 Kings, the two prostitutes being the two servants. So first point, two servants of the king come with conflicting stories. Uh, and we'll, we'll read in just a second what those are with the prostitutes. Two, both tell a story in which a precious possession is theirs by right. Now, Mephibosheth does not emphasize this, but clearly his version of the story, he's still the rightful heir to uh, Saul. Uh, third, the king offers to divide the precious thing in half. Four, the true servant willingly releases claim on the possession out of love in Mephibosheth's case, it's love for David. He, he's only concerned about David's well-being, so it really doesn't matter to him who, uh, who the inheritance belongs to. And in the case of the prostitutes, it's she's the real mom, so she doesn't want her kid cut in half. And the final point there, the king discerns the true servant and grants the possession. <clears throat> that's not true with David. So that's the only point that is, that is different. So uh, could somebody now read... Um, 1 Kings 3, 16-28. I'll read it. Okay, thanks. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept. And I laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other said, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one, and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, yearned for her son. <coughs> oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Thank you. Um... <coughs> So before I uh, close my, my part, um, which is just, I'm going to read the conclusion of my paper, which um, may answer some questions or complaints that people would have with the thesis. But I'm curious if anybody uh, has any, any thoughts before that uh, or any flaws in the, the line of logic I've, I've used, which I actually would like. 
everybody has. Well, my reaction yes. uh, to reading the paper is that, that in some sense it detracts from the last verse that we just read, which was, and they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do ju judgment. Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me that that God, in a very unusual way, gave Solomon great wisdom. And the tone of the paper is, yeah, but God's really not so great. Solomon just heard his dad say this thing, and that's not a very big, very important decision he made with these prostitutes. Yeah. It's not really God's wisdom. It's just what he learned from his dad. Mm -hmm. it, the degree to which the paper sort of says what I just said, mm -hmm. I think detracts from the miracle of God's wisdom. And mm -hmm. in that sense, I didn't care for the tone of the paper. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, idea. yeah. So uh, recapping that, in case anybody didn't hear it in the back, um, uh, uh, Mr. Joe Green is saying that uh, Dr. Joe Green is saying that um, the paper, <laughs> uh, the uh, the paper is maybe kind of uh, de-spiritualizing or de-emphasizing the supernatural way in which God has granted uh, Solomon wisdom. And uh, so in in the outline, I I gave some background which I didn't I didn't want to go into it kind of bogs down um, the presentation but um, in the first half of first Kings 3 there, there honestly in my opinion this is one of the stranger passage uh, passages in the Old Testament it there there are a lot of interpretive questions and I'll run through them really quickly and then I'll come back to your your question um, so Solomon the the whole thing kicks off at the beginning um, chapter 3 with Solomon's mar marriage to Pharaoh's daughter and it it seems like everything we've learned about what Israelites should and shouldn't do with intermarriage that this is maybe something bad um, and then it's followed with something else that's bad which is the people sacrificing at high places and Solomon himself going up with I believe a thousand bulls to sacrifice at the greatest of the high places which is at Gibeon and um, I have some notes there as to where, so the tabernacle had been there, but now it's in Jerusalem. So he's going to somewhere where there is no tabernacle. When they have the tabernacle in Jerusalem, he's going to a high place to kill a thousand bulls to try and impress God. And the text specifically says there, but there was this one thing, the people still sacrificed at high places, so clearly it's, it's a bad thing. And then in response to these thousand bulls, God comes to him at night to meet with him and says, I'll give you whatever you want. And um, so if the high places were bad, why does God visit him and bless him in verse 5? Um, and uh, then he, his complaint is very interesting. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And that comes from, uh, that um, phrase comes from Numbers twenty-seven seventeen, which I think, I, I haven't been able to find anybody make this case. I think it relates to the term that Solomon refers to himself in, Ecclesiastes, which is Koheleth, which is the gatherer, because the context, if you go back to Numbers, is um, being the one who congregates the people going out and coming in. So the congregator, and that's Solomon's chosen name for himself in Ecclesiastes. Um, uh, and so he, his problem is how to govern, how to have dominion, how to discern or know good and evil, which 
that's a whole lot of Genesis 2 stuff right there. I don't know exactly what to do, it, but he's wanting to be able to successfully fulfill um, that. And then God in, comes and speaks with them, and at the end we're told, but it was a dream. <laughs> so I think it actually was God, but there's a whole lot of explaining you'd have to do as to why God is blessing uh, David breaking lots of uh, sorry, thank you, Solomon breaking lots of rules of the covenant and then being blessed with God not making any, any mention of those. Um, and, and, then, and then, of course, even with all that wisdom, he goes really far astray with all the foreign wives that carry his heart away. So anyway, that, that's a little bit of context. And then to, to better answer your, hopefully, to answer your, your qualm, uh, I, I'm going to read the conclusion of my paper where I tried to backtrack any perception that I might be doing that, that I might be taking the magic away, or, or sorry, magic, the, the spirituality of uh, the wisdom that's given to him. So I'm, I'm just going to read this. Uh, sorry, if people don't have this in front of them. I'll, I'll try to keep it entertaining. So, so how did Solomon learn these things? A question that may have occurred to you in the course of this excursus is, how did Solomon know about this event from his father's life? The simple answer is the court reporter. We no longer have the annals of King David, uh, which are mentioned in 1 Chronicles 27-24, but we can be sure that there was some kind of courtly scribe who took down all of David's decrees and preserved them for settling legal issues in the kingdom, which upon his return to the throne, when Mephibosheth comes to him, he's deciding millions, if not billions of dollars of real property. So this is almost certainly would be recorded by a court reporter He's making a royal decree there, despite the fact that he's on the back of a donkey and not his throne. So, um, and that's why everybody was rushing him as he came in, because he has the capability to do that. He doesn't have to be sitting on his throne to make these decisions. So everything was thrown into upheaval. People are bum-rushing him, trying to make sure that their case gets heard first. It reminds us very much of how the Israelites were wearing Moses out as he was deciding all of their cases in the, in the desert. Um, uh, Furthermore, I believe that after Zol Solomon was granted his request for wisdom from God, he didn't wait around for the spirit to zap wise thoughts into his head, but took it as a matter of faith that he would become wise and set about to learn all the lessons of his father. In this case, he would be learning a lesson that his father did not learn. As Solomon read the court reporter's account of his father's reign, I'm sure that he was relieved to see Mephibosheth hobbling out to David's returning retinue, and Dave, Solomon said to himself, Ah, now justice will be done. After David makes the callous decision to divide the property in half, and Mephibosheth spontaneously offers for the entirety of it to remain with Ziba, Zol Solomon must now have shouted, See, he is the innocent party. It's so clear. He loved not his life more than his beloved king. Interestingly, the account of David's encounter with Ziba and Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 19 does not tell us David's final decision. For all we know, he may have shrugged his shoulders and responded to Mephibosheth's surrender. Okay, Mephibosheth doesn't want the property. Give it all to Ziba. If he did, I am sure that Solomon cried out in frustration at his father's short-sightedness and likely hastened to make amends to Mephibosheth's offspring himself. The tragic fact is that David was acting much more like Saul when he decided to go through with cutting the baby in two he was more concerned with saving face and quickly moving this sticky case off his docket than getting to the bottom of the matter. 
And then quoting Proverbs 20, verse 5, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. But that process of drawing it out takes patience and wisdom and would have required David to admit that his previous decision to strip Mephibosheth in favor of Ziba was a hasty one. The important lesson that Solomon took from uh, reflection on his father's failings is that in the very moment when an existential decision is suddenly and shockingly put before two people, the first blush reaction that rises to the surface will reveal the hearts of the petitioners. What we learned was that even if you say you will cut the baby in two, you don't really have to. The true heart will reveal itself in the nature of its response, and this is summed up in the saying of our Savior, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. May our hearts be as true, and may we have the wisdom of Solomon too. So, other than the dumb rhyme at the end. Yeah, oh, okay. We've got a seven-minute warning and a question. Solomon was the last king over the United Kingdom. So, yeah. so um, uh, he, he wrote the book of Proverbs for his sons to rule, and then they did not learn from that very clear lesson of not splitting mm-hmm. the kingdom in two. Mm-hmm. So did he give split it up for them? Um, I mean, or did they just take it over with the king Solomon? So you're saying did... I think it. Yeah, after his death. So they didn't like learn from yeah. his lesson or his wisdom. So even if he learned this lesson, he he didn't impart it, which is a very frequent story. But yeah. yeah well, well I, I'm curious. I want to go back now and read yeah. the the tone part that Joe brings to play. Pastor is currently reconsidering having had me. Under <laughs> 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 the mic there. But, but the point I think the point that Courtney is bringing up is actually the one at play. Is if you're a parent and you've ever instructed your child in wise things, and then they're sitting there, and the very next thing they do the same thing, like they are a dead, like like it, it, they are ignorant, right? They, they're not wise, and so. We, we don't want to forget that God, even when he does miraculous things, he is still instructing us and teaching us from the world around us. I mean, Solomon talks about that uh, when he reflects on uh, using imagery from creation, right? We see that being instructed. And so um, it still takes God's miraculous blessing to gain the wisdom in order to put those things to play. He can certainly breathe the... the, the Yeah, and I, I, th- I have a line, I don't have it in front of me, but some, somewhere in the paper I, I talk about, um, uh, I, I actually quote another Proverbs, uh, proverb which says, uh, paraphrasing, um, instruct the fool and he will mock you, instruct the wise and he will gain even more wisdom. And the same event can happen to a, a fool or someone who is seeking after wisdom, and they have very different very different effects. And so the supernatural wisdom given to Solomon is what enabled him to learn from the event, whereas a, a fool in his position would have been like, 
weird thing that happened to my dad. Cool. Next. And he wouldn't have gained that wisdom. So, Joe, I, I would ask you do, you, do you think that somehow it's more uh, glorifying to God if, and, and I'm not trying to ridicule your position, but the phrase that I used here, if God had like zapped, you know, if God had teleported that idea into Solomon's head uh, that cut, the, you know, God leans over, cut the baby in half. You know, I mean, is that is that more glorifying to God than the potential origin that I give of the idea? Well, so I guess I need to re reread and rewrite the paper because I 100% agree with, with what you're saying. I, I'm just trying to emphasize the means by which God allowed Solomon to gain that wisdom through, you know, quote unquote, like kind of a natural pathway of learning from one's father. No, it was your mom. So by him departing from the sort of decision his father had made, yeah. clearly he's breaking new ground. And like I think <coughs> there's stuff being missed because clearly God gives us wisdom, and it's like like you said, like some two people can see the same thing, and a person whose heart is dark and is a fool is totally going to miss everything, but a one who's wise can fully understand it and interpret it. It like I I was following you in that, and I don't think. It may be that he didn't fully understand the context of Mephibosheth until God gave him the wisdom that he applied in that situation. David? Yeah. I mean, no, 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 Solomon, Solomon. I'm sorry. Okay. It, it may be that, I'm sorry, it may be that Solomon, obviously, he rem maybe he remembered it, but he didn't fully understand it until God gave him wisdom. Hmm. Well, I, I like, think... I, that's how I see God, I see God's supernatural wisdom mm -hmm. to us So you're, you're saying, well, I mean, just like when we read the scriptures, our ability to understand it like comes God through the Holy Spirit. God wisdom outside of, our outside of our life and our experience and what we see. Mm. He gives us wisdom into those things. So a supernatural wisdom that isn't applied and developed is almost useless. It yeah. doesn't become prudent. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> uh, and then I think this is the last. Yeah, yeah. comment that I, was, I, I took from this is that uh, Solomon's heart was open, and he went ahead and asked God to give me give him wisdom. So his heart was already open to go ahead and, and be able to to take on the wisdom God was going to give him in order to him to rule the kingdom. And then it goes also shows that David, even though he was a man after, after God's own heart, during the the chaos that was going on, that you know our human human nature is to trust ourselves instead of having our heart open to God's wisdom and sometimes make decisions because we're in a chaotic position instead mm -hmm. of trusting God to go ahead and, and guide us through these things. So, And then with Solomon's sons, same thing. They just kind of went their own way, not trusting on what God wanted to help them with. <coughs> Solomon's heart was open to that wisdom. Yep. So I, I think that's what you're kind of 
interesting, right? We've got Joseph with him, but the heart's not open to receive it. We're not going to be able to utilize that. Unless he lets our hearts receive it. Yes, right, exactly. And pastors, let me know. Time's up. I'm going to uh, pray real quick. There are 10 or 11 copies up there. I couldn't find a stapler. There are four pages unnumbered. So if you mix mix them out of order, you're going to be out of luck. Uh, so maybe I'll get a pen and write them on there real quick. But also I can text out to anybody on, on Theopolis's website. The name of the article is the very tongue-in-cheek title, On Not Needing to Cut the Baby in Half. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to pray real quick. Is that all right? All right. Uh, Lord, thank you for your wonderful scriptures that have deeper wisdom and hidden uh, truth uh, more than any other text. And I pray that you would make us uh, wise, at least even approaching to Solomon. Thank you that we have your Holy Spirit, um, that, that we even have hope at being wise. In Jesus' name, amen.